The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I hope y'all had a great Christmas season. Uh, I got everything you wanted under the tree when you, when you looked. You know, I'm really... Very, very difficult to surprise. My wife will attest to that. I'm impossible virtually, but this year she pulled it off. She surprised me this year. I got uh, three volumes of the Lost Sermons of Charles Spurgeon. Been wanting those, didn't know I was going to get them. And I got tickets for an April concert of my favorite prog metal band, Dream Theater. Now, strange combination, you're thinking to yourself, right? Spurgeon and prog metal, but I like my theology like I like my music, heavy. So there you go. And in all seriousness, I hope, uh, I hope you got what you wanted under the tree. Uh, three years ago, I received what uh, has to be maybe one of my favorite presents I've ever received at Christmas. And I think we have a picture of it here. Yeah, it was a little pendant, and I've worn it every day uh, since uh, Christmas three years ago. It's a little pendant, has a cross, and in each of the, of the corners of the cross, there are signs of each of the four Gospels. And that's based on the 8th century Irish book of Kells. And, and you have Jesus depicted um, in, in the way that each of the four Gospels sort of take their slant on the story of Jesus. And so Matthew's Gospel uh, is depicted as a winged man because Jesus is the Messiah, fulfilling all of those Jewish prophecies. Mark's Gospel, he's a winged lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. John's Gospel, he is a winged eagle because his divinity soars right out of the gate when you read the Gospel of John. But for Luke, for Luke's gospel, Dr. Luke, this long, detailed, meticulous gospel, Jesus is pictured as a winged ox because Jesus is, in effect, a beast of burden in the gospel of Luke. He is a servant to the needy and the outcast and, and the oppressed and, and the ostracized. 
Um, there, there, there's, a, there's an interesting sort of relationship between uh, the Gospels, especially the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call them the synoptic Gospels, sin, synthesis, together, right? There, there's a together optic, a together seeing, or a synthetic seeing of the story of Jesus. They're called the synoptic Gospels, yet each of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, they, they sort of have their own purpose for telling the story of, of Jesus. For instance, Luke begins his genealogy of Jesus all the way back with Adam, whereas Matthew begins with Abraham because there's a real Jewish flavor to the Gospel of Matthew, but there's a, there's a Gentile thrust to the Gospel of Luke. And so he begins the genealogy of Jesus all the way back with, with Adam. And, and Luke is wanting to show that the Gospel of Jesus Christ is for every tribe, tongue, and nation, not not only uh, for, for Jew. And so we find Jesus as a servant to the needy, ready to meet the needs of the poor and the, and the ostracized, the helpless, the outsider, women, um, those that, that Jewish culture deemed unclean or cast aside, subhuman, or, or even a threat. And, and speaking of threats, what, what could have been a more present reminder of threat for Jews of, of, of those days than the presence of Rome all around. Rome, Rome owned the world. Rome ruled uh, the, the world. And to have a, a Roman centurion present was a constant reminder of that. A Roman centurion was a very powerful military officer with a hundred men under his uh, immediate, uh, immediate command. And so nothing was more authoritative than, than Rome. And so, so out of nowhere, seemingly, uh, in Luke 7, this Roman centurion uh, shows up. And, and he's actually the first of a string of three centurions in the writings of Luke and, and his second volume, Acts. We, we see this first centurion here. But then at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 23, 47, there's a centurion who looks up at Jesus on the cross and says, surely he was a son of God. And then in Acts chapter 10, there's a centurion named Cornelius who responds to the preaching of Peter. And it's Luke's way of preparing us for the shock of all shocks that the gospel is for Gentiles as, as well. And, and so while Jesus is a servant, a very humble, tender servant to the needy and the oppressed, don't be mistaken, he is the real authority. In fact, the incarnation proclaims the fact that he is the authority. The incarnation, we just celebrated, proclaims the reality that that little babe in the manger scene came to reign as eternal king. In fact, the first seven chapters of Luke, Jesus shows his sovereign power over the five things you and I fear the most. He shows his sovereign authority over the devil and the demonic realm, over natural calamity, over over the guilt of sin, over natural disaster and disease and, and even death. You know, Christmas brings a lot of fears, um, brings a lot of fears of a lot of things, brings up a lot of needs, a lot of heartaches. For some of us, uh, this time of year is anything but merry and bright, and um, our hearts break, our eyes are holding back a damn burst of tears, maybe don't even know why, but we just find it hard to trust, hard to believe, hard to hard to find faith or maybe maybe for some of us it's when the parties are over and the gifts have all been opened and now the decorations are being you know put back up that uh the fear and the weariness and the worry um set back in uh, when my mama passed away in the summer of 2015 uh, my wife diane went through her belongings um out at her house in lebanon and she found a bunch of christmas wish lists that i had made when i was a little boy 
Uh, see, the, the, the first research project that I ever undertook was not my dissertation. It was when the primary source material of the service merchandise catalog, the JCPenney catalog, and the Sears catalog would arrive at Christmas, and I would comb through the pages of the toy sections of those Christmas catalogs. I'd make my lists out for the things I wanted for Christmas. Now, I don't know what's on your wish list. I hope you got it, and, and I hope that, that you're getting where I'm going here. I, I'm not talking about Apple AirPods, but if you got a pair of those, it was a minor miracle because they were out all over Nashville, trust me. But, but I'm talking about what, were the th- what are the things that are really your, your longings, your, your deepest desires, right? What, what are the, what's the wish list, the, the hopes, the, the needs, the things that if only Jesus would come through for you? Right? And, and part of what makes it hard uh, is, is that we listen to the world. The world tells us, hey, look, you're basically good. God owes you. You're basically good, especially when you compare yourself uh, to those around you who are much worse than you are. Surely God owes it to, to you to, to do things, you know, your way. And even, even songs this time of year reinforce this. Um, try this one on for size. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus has come to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake. You ever reflect on the lyrics of that song and think, well, I'm screwed. I'm just screwed. I I am bad. I am naughty. I I pout. I am all of these things, right? The the reality is, though, we we take this into our relationship with God so easily. And and maybe this is what makes the whole idea of religion and Christianity confusing for you. Maybe maybe you're here this morning and you're just exploring the truth claims of Christianity for the first time. Maybe you wouldn't necessarily self-identify as a Christian, as a as a follower of Christ, you're, you're interested in spirituality and, and how that fits into your worldview. I think this story of the centurion and his servant um, really points out for us that at the end of the day, there really are only two religions in the world, only two approaches to spirituality, only two ultimate foundations for worldview. Uh, one, uh, a religion of human achievement, and two, a religion of divine accomplishment. A religion of human achievement and a religion of divine accomplishment. You know, by the time we get to Luke chapter 7, Jesus' reputation has been, has been spreading. He's been doing some amazing things. Word is spread. He sets demoniacs free. He heals people of all kinds of diseases. He's teaching with a new kind of authority. People are clamoring just to get close enough to him to touch him because as we read in 517 and 619 and 846, healing miraculous power is just sort of surging out of him and, and people just want to get close to him. And, and Capernaum is, is basically his base of ministry operations. But he's gone out on preaching and teaching and, and ministry. And now he comes back into Capernaum. And, and this Roman soldier hears about this Galilean who obviously has a sort of inside connection with God. And right out of the gate, we learn um, something about this incredibly special and, and unique centurion. Something about his heart. And, and it's this. He actually cares about his slave. He cares about his servant. Servants were as common as eyebrows. They were expendable. They were a dime a dozen. Yet in Matthew's parallel account, we read the centurion was distraught because his servant was paralyzed and he was suffering greatly. And and again, this is not because his servant was merely valuable to him. Again, they were expendable, right? You could could more or less replace them like, like livestock. 
In Luke's account, the servant's on his deathbed. No doubt, the long, breathless death watch of mourners had had already started to, to gather. The centurion cannot bear the thought of his servant, who is in the Greek, intimos, precious, precious to him. He can't bear the thought of, of him dying. You know, there's, nothing, there's nothing like the impending heart wrench of death to make you want to run to Jesus. I watched a, uh, a video a couple of days ago uh, of Dr. David Pallison, who's the director of Christian Counseling and Education Foundation in Philadelphia. Some of you uh, perhaps have read some of his books or uh, you know, you appreciate the counseling ministry of CCEF. Our own Dr. Virginia Stewart with, with Christ Press, she does Hope Ministries and Biblical Counseling, did her training there. Well, he's been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And in this video I watched a couple of days ago, it was just shot about a week ago, he's reflecting on the reality of his own mortality and walking with Jesus uh, through, through it. And he's facing his mortality, he's facing this today with Jesus because by his own testimony, it was when he was 19 or 20 years old that he witnessed a couple of people close to him dying that made him run to Jesus to, to begin with. Death is our greatest enemy, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 26. We live, you and I, in a lifelong slavery to our fear of death. Now, I know some of you are thinking, okay, David, what are you doing coming in here Christmas time talking about death, right? New Year's Eve is coming. Right, college football playoffs are going on. Maybe, maybe, maybe even the night the Titans are going to beat the Colts and go to the playoffs. And you come in here and talk about death. Why are you talking about death at a time like Christmas? Because Hebrews two tells us Jesus was born for this, the incarnation. Right, he, he took on our flesh, made like you and me, that he might launch out on a ministry of destruction and deliverance. That's why Jesus was born. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He was born to launch out on a ministry of destruction and deliverance. We read in Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, that's you and me, who through our fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so Luke, very detailed as usual, records elders of the Jews coming out, lobbying on behalf of this Roman centurion, relaying his request to Jesus. The, the elders of the Jews begin their appeal to Jesus on the basis of a religion of human achievement. They, they begin by negotiating. This centurion is worthy of you healing his servant because he loves our nation and he, and he built our synagogue. Now a little bit of background here. Rome owned the world. Rome ruled everything. Rome was capable of brutal, savage dominion. However, she prized the appearance of what scholars call the Pax Romana, the Latin for the peace of Rome, right? Uh, having all of your conquered territories in line and, and peaceful, no insurrections, no riots, that kind of thing. It was good for business. It made for, for good governance. And so Rome was more than willing to allow Israel to keep and observe her religious traditions as long as she paid to play. Acknowledge the ultimate authority of Rome, keep the peace, and pay taxes to Rome, etc., this centurion, however, was beloved. It's a really strange situation. A Roman centurion, wealthy enough to build their synagogue in Capernaum, its foundations can actually be seen to this day if you go there. Wealthy enough to build their, their synagogue. He's obviously a God-fearing Gentile. He's friendly with the Jews. On the other hand, Jewish religious leaders lobbying on behalf of a Roman soldier. So they, they mount their case. He's a good man. He's a worthy man. 
He's an accomplished man. He, he's a wealthy man who has been a great benefactor to us, to our nation, to our religion. Surely, Jesus, someone who has lived such a good, generous life deserves for you to return the favor. He is worthy of you sparing his servant from death. Hasn't, hasn't he earned a special exemption? Hasn't he merited your favor, Jesus? Now, you might easily enough see through the rationale of, of these Jews, but we do the same thing. Right when it comes to death, or particularly when it comes to life after death, right? We say things or we hear things maybe like this. I'm not a particularly religious person. Um, in fact, I, I, I'm certainly not ready to accept the notion that Jesus is a God. But if he is, then when I die, I'll let him tally up the score. He can see that I've really done enough good in my life to outweigh uh, the bad, I've been very generous. I've even given money to the church. I think he'll let me slide right on in. Are you sure about that? You want to you stake eternity on the basis of your own record of goodness and obedience? Jesus, he is worthy. Do this for him. It's a religion of human achievement. Here's the reality. Every religious system in the world, every approach to spirituality and salvation, going to a better place, self-actualization, becoming one with the force, as Yoda would say, uh, ascending to some higher degree of celestial self, reaching nirvana, whatever, everything is, is based on uh, achieving to be accepted, grinding to gain, working to be welcomed. You know, a religion of, of human achievement. You know, Buddha's last words, through vigilance, awaken, strive. Every religious system, every worldview is a religion of human achievement. You've got to pay to play, except for one, Christianity, the way of Jesus, the religion of divine accomplishment. He paid so you can play. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your soul. Do any of you need this morning to hear Jesus' invitation to stop your weary attempts to negotiate and manipulate him into doing things your way and to, to lay your worries down at the feet of his wisdom? What happens next in Luke's story reveals the centurion's heart and and it actually invites you and me to examine our own hearts by the time jesus made his way to the centurion's house the centurion sent friends out to intercept jesus um he, he sends friends out to, to intercept this mysterious rabbi. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for, for I am not deserving for you to come under my roof. Now surely this centurion knows he could have cashed in on a favor to the Jews. In fact, he was a man used to commanding people left, right, and center. Couldn't he have commanded Jesus as he might have commanded any other Jew to do his bidding? The religious leaders say, Jesus, he is worthy. You owe him. The centurion said, in effect, Jesus I am unworthy. You own me. And Luke's story actually parallels the Old Testament story of Naaman and Elisha the prophet. We read about it in 2 Kings 5, 1 to 27. Uh, a Gentile officer uh, with leprosy, Naaman, hears about this Jewish miracle worker, the prophet Elisha. And so without meeting the prophet, he receives a word of healing. But he doesn't approach Elisha uh, in, in the humble way that the centurion uh, does. In fact, he's not actually all that satisfied with the way Elisha carried out the healing. 
And then after he receives the healing, he, he wants to pay Elisha back with gold and silver. And, and we're, we're very much that way ourselves. Jesus, I'm so thankful for what you've done in my life. I'm going to pay you back. And even out of the best of intentions, when we think we can pay Jesus back for what he's done for us, it reduces what he's done for us to something we can afford, right? And, and so that's what, that's what Naaman does here. But our, our centurion in Luke 7, right, he approaches Jesus so humbly. He doesn't even want Jesus a Jew, and a rabbi at that, to be tainted by entering his Gentile house. For a Jew to enter a Gentile's house would make them unclean. He doesn't want Jesus to become unclean by getting near him. What if the Messiah came near to such a sinner as me? He knows, again, what it is to command soldiers under him with absolute authority, but he recognizes that he's facing a situation now over which he has no authority, and he recognizes that Jesus has authority to command disease and death. Jesus, I am not worthy. You are alone all worthy. I know you can do whatever you please. I will not make myself above you or equal with you. I will not try to to barter or or to negotiate with you, right? We, We need a dose of the same thing I need it in my heart. You need it as well. We need to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have no negotiating power, right? I, as Jonathan Edwards says, I have nothing to contribute to my salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I need your righteousness. I have none of my own. We need to learn to sing as Augustus Top Lady taught us to sing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. January 1st of 1937, J. Gresham Machen, who uh, founded uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, was, was out in North Dakota on a fundraising tour to raise money for the seminary and the little Presbyterian uh, denomination he had helped found. And he left Philadelphia with a cold, wound up in North Dakota with pneumonia. He, he is lying on his deathbed and uh, gasping for, for breath. And he sends one last telegram back to his colleague, back at the seminary, John Murray, who was a professor of theology, and this telegram said simply this, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. The active obedience of Christ refers to the fact that Jesus perfectly lived out full obedience to the law of God for you and me. He perfectly obeyed the whole law of God for lawbreakers like you and me. Jesus obeyed perfectly the law of God and his record of law-keeping obedience is accredited to those who simply come to Jesus and say, I'm not worthy, you are worthy. You own me, have me, Jesus. Paul says as much in Romans 10.4, Christ is the end. The Greek word there is telos. You look through a telescope, you see the, the end, the goal. Christ is the goal, the completion, the fulfillment, the telos of the law for righteousness to all who believe. You believe in Jesus and the Father sees you as righteous as his Son. You are as righteous in the sight of your heavenly Father as Jesus is. It's an amazing thing, this gospel. You see, Jesus has been good for your sake because we can't be good for goodness sake. And when we are bad, and when we cry, and when we pout, right? Maybe some of you have things that are worth crying over. I know some of you do. You give me the privilege of a front row seat in your life as a pastor at Christ Pres, and, and some of us have things that are worth crying over. Some of us are bad. Uh, some of us pout. You know, we say in our house, if you're pouting, we say, are you being a pouty poot right now? And here's one of the things. If somebody's pouting in our house and you call them a pouty poot, it makes them pout even more. 
right? It just takes the pouting to a whole different level when you've been called a pouty poot. But here's the reality. We are bad. We cry, right? We pout. You better watch out. No, you need only look up. You need only look up at the right hand of your father where we read Hebrews 7.25, Jesus always lives to intercede for you. You better watch out. No, you need only look up to that man at the father's right hand interceding for you as we read in Hebrews 4.14-16. Since therefore we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let us hold on swerving to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is at all points tempted, even without sin, Therefore, let us approach boldly the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It's good to know that when we pout, when we cry, when we're bad, when we are weak, right? Jesus doesn't scold us for our weaknesses. He, he sympathizes with our, with our weaknesses and he, and he comes to us, right? You know, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that he wanted to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that came by his own law-keeping obedience, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Martin Luther, when he lay dying in 1546, was, was lying in bed dying, and, and he, he scribbled out on a, on a scrap of paper a little note as his sort of final testimony, and he laid it on the nightstand next to his bed. It was found the next day, and that note contained two sentences, one in German, one in Latin. Virsen da Bettler Hocus Verum. We are all beggars. This is true. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's how the centurion came. He came as, as a beggar, right? And, and let us not miss the fact that that it wasn't just the centurion who had encountered Jesus. His servant certainly experienced Jesus in precisely the way he needed. Jesus gave him a foretaste of that day when he would make all things new, when there would be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. One of my greatest privileges as a pastor at Christ Presbyterian is, is gravesides, graveside services, funerals, being at deathbeds, being at sickbeds, walking with families when they are when their hearts are breaking, it is my highest privilege, right? And I know I speak for all our pastors, but here's the thing. I can't wait for the day when there will be no more need for graveside services, where there will be no more need for sickbed visitation. I can't wait for the day when that which Jesus gave this servant a foretaste of will be ours to feast upon. And the centurion himself is acting out what we call the priesthood of all believers. He's interceding on behalf of his, of his servant. Would that we would be this way with each other right? I mean, by, by application, think, imagine creating a situation wherein those who worked under you, those who worked with you, were the recipients of your efforts to dignify them and their work. They weren't seen as expendable, right? To, to, be, to be so concerned for them where you would seek the redemptive and healing presence of Jesus in your working relationship and in the work environment with them, right? It's part of what National Institute for Faith and Work seeks to inculcate and incubate. The priesthood of all believers, where we so care for one another, the way the centurion is caring for his servant. You, know, you turn the page in Luke chapter 8, the woman with the flow of blood that could not be healed, she's ostracized, she is unclean. She presses in to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and Jesus feels power surge out of him. Would that we at Christ's prayers take everyone by the hand and go find and touch the healing hem of Jesus' garment together. Let that be our reputation in 2019 that we just help each other find the healing hymn of, of, Jesus, of Jesus' garment. He was astounded, Jesus was, at the faith of the centurion. 
He, was, he marveled at the faith of this Gentile Roman centurion. Yet what was the essence of his faith? What was, it, was it that his faith was of such a massively sophisticated, super sanctified sort that you nor I will never have a shot at getting Jesus to notice us? No. In fact, in Luke 17, 5-6, the disciples asked Jesus, increase our faith. And Jesus said, you don't need your faith to be increased. In fact, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mulberry tree, uproot yourself and be planted in the sea and it'll be done. And I know how small mustard seeds are because when my son, who is now 18, was about three years old, he came into the kitchen shaking a bottle of mustard seed and the top came off and they went everywhere. We're still finding them to this day, 15 years later. They're, they're tiny, right? Jesus has got that much faith. See, here's the reality. The faith at which Jesus marvels is not the faith in and of itself or something that, that, that this centurion had conjured up. He's not been catechized, right? He's not attended Sunday school. What, what ultimately does he know about the Messiah other than I am unworthy and he is worthy? You see, here's the reality. Our faith has an object, but the object of our faith is never our faith. Lest we are tempted to make our faith another work by, where we try to get, by which we try to get God satisfied with us and keep God satisfied with us. No, our faith has an object, and the object of our faith is never our faith. The object of our faith is our faithful Savior. And, and that's, that's what was going on here with, with the centurion, right? That's what was going on. The bottom line of the centurion's faith was that he was unworthy and Jesus was all-worthy. And so if you're here thinking to yourself, man, I'm new at this Christianity thing, and I don't know a lot of the lingo, and I'm not really good at praying, and all of this kind of thing, and my faith is not really strong. Jesus marveled at faith as simple as, I am, I am unworthy, Jesus. I know I have no worthiness in and of myself. You alone are all worthy. And Jesus says, I've not seen anything like that in all Israel. He marveled at that kind of simple faith. And don't miss the implications of, of what's going on here. As a Roman centurion, he knew the power of Rome over a conquered people. Yet now he faced something over which he had no commanding authority, something Rome could not rule, death. Yet here we have the centurion, a representative of Rome, bowing unworthy before the authority of a Jewish rabbi claiming to be the Messiah. This was tantamount to an act of treason. Did, did, did he even fully realize how subversive an act this was? This flew in the face of everything that Rome claimed for its ultimate authority. This was actually a denial of Caesar Curios and a declaration of Jesus Curios, Jesus is Lord. It's a kind of gospel boldness I saw in an email that I received this week. A former seminary student of mine forwarded to me an email from a friend of his. Um, this seminary student is... Um, is now uh, doing ministry back in his homeland, and um, his friend is there in, in his homeland as well, uh, on the other side of the Pacific, the training for ministry. And I just have to read it, uh, but you'll understand, I have to leave some of the details out. This, this young man, this happened just like a week ago, y'all. I was taken to the police station for a while a few days ago. Later, I was directly brought back to city number one from city number two, by two national security guards in city number one. I just sneaked back to city number two from city number one yesterday and asked God to continue to protect me. I am prepared to be persecuted together with my brothers and sisters here. The next two months are busy. 
because I have to take the preaching qualification exam in February. I'll spend a lot of time preparing for the exam. I just took the Bible test last week. It took me eight hours. Then I took part of the theology and part of the church governance exams. This man's training to be a minister, doing his, his ordination exams. Each part of these two exams also took more than eight hours each. There are four other theological assignments to be completed this semester. I've been scheduled to preach in the next three consecutive weeks in small gatherings. Please ask God to strengthen and lead us. But I will spend at least two hours a day in my Greek studies. I hope to complete the teacher's homework and and exam requirements. Pray for me and my family because the recent persecution is very strong and I don't know what's going to happen. Right? Jesus is the authority. Not Rome, not these national security guards persecuting this young man. Like like our centurion's testimony and acknowledgement that there is one God of life and death. And it's not Rome. It wasn't the Roman centurion. It was not the religious traditions of a religion of human achievement. It's Jesus himself. And we need to take this to heart. Uh, My bent ever since the Garden of Eden is that I want to be my own God. And I come by it honestly, quite, quite frankly, my first parents in Genesis 3 The serpent comes to them and says, eat the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be open, and you will see that you are God's. And they ate the forbidden fruit, and their eyes were open, and they saw what pathetic excuses for God's they turned out to be. They ate the forbidden fruit, and their eyes were open, and they saw there was a God, and they weren't him. Yet you come to the end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. They prevail upon him to stay that night and have supper. They break bread. Jesus bids them eat the bread, and Luke says their eyes were open, and they saw who God really was. They recognized him. You're about to be bidden to eat bread, and your eyes are going to be open. You're going to see Jesus, as it were, standing in your midst by his Holy Spirit, ready to minister to you, to to speak a healing word to you. You know, I was given that, that gift of that necklace three years ago with signs of the gospel all over, but the reality is every Christmas, Jesus has given me something better. He's given me the gospel itself. Jesus, the Messiah, has come near and tabernacle tented with a sinner like me and like you deigned to get dirty in all of my badness and my crying and my pouting so that I could look up. Right? He gives you signs of the gospel right here in the bread and, and the wine because he wants you to hunger for the gospel itself. He wants you to bring to this table not your best behavior. That's not your ticket. He paid so you can play. He wants you to bring to this table your hurts, your hopes, your fears, your failures, all of the things that nag at you and, and maybe even made it difficult to enjoy Christmas. He says, bring all of them and you come and you say here, Lord, speak a word over me. Speak a healing word. And he says, come, beloved, and taste the word taste a healing word the lord's supper you see is is a sign it's not a snack it's a sign and and it points us to the reality of of the gospel that we so desperately need Uh, the lord's supper is actually a confession of faith it's like the centurion i am not worthy you are worthy and so if you were here and and you and you can say from the heart i know i am not worthy but jesus is all worthy if you've been baptized into christ and you're in fellowship with, with a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. This table is for you. Come and, and say to Jesus, speak a healing word, and then he will say, taste this healing word. If you're here and, and you would say, look, I, I, I appreciate it. I don't know, though, that I would call myself a believer. don't know that I would self-identify as a follower of Christ. We're thrilled that you're here. 
We really are. Uh, the, the opportunity uh, for you to talk with others around you and, and get to know folks, even, even if you want, come up as, as other Christians come and just observe. Just observe uh, people through this simple act of, of taking bread and wine, saying in their hearts, I am not worthy in and of myself, but Jesus alone is, is worthy, and, and I desperately need him. You can come and, and observe and observe that. I'm going to encourage us uh, now to turn our hearts and our eyes to the words on the screen.